Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. We'll be continuing our text this morning, beginning with verse 18. The title of the message is Hope in the Midst of Betrayal. But before we read the text, I want to invite you uh, to bow in prayer with me. Let us pray together. Father, as we open your word, the word of life, we ask, Lord, that now you would speak into our very lives, that you would encourage us and exhort us and teach us how to walk with you and that you would increase our joy. Father, we pray that your word would fuel us with hope. We thank you for your word in advance as we open it this morning. And we ask, God, that you would open our eyes to see, our minds to comprehend, and our hearts to love the truth of your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is a text that many of us are familiar with. And it's one that might be a little bit uncomfortable for us as we look at the life of the betrayer. This is the text where John tells us and narrates the story of Judas' betraying Jesus. And so the title, Hope in the Midst of of Betrayal, is, is a title, hopefully, that communicates that what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that there is still hope even in the midst of my betrayal. In fact, Ultimately, there is hope because I will be betrayed. Because I will be betrayed. The question is, as we enter into this text is, have you ever been betrayed before? Have you ever felt what it, what it feels like, experienced what it feels like to be betrayed How did it make you feel when you were betrayed, if you have ever been? Maybe you've seen someone, or maybe, maybe unfortunately, you were on the other end and you were the one that betrayed another. How did it make you feel? Did it make you feel like you wanted to respond vindictively? How did you respond to the one who betrayed you? Did you respond aggressively? Did you respond simply passively, but yet remain bitter? Did you respond with forgiveness? Did you overlook the fault of the person that betrayed you? This text calls us to think upon our our own activity in light of the betrayal of others, but specifically as we see Jesus in response to Judas and his betrayal, knowing, Jesus knowing that Judas would betray him, having really known all along. We might say, well, how long did Jesus know that Judas would betray him? John chapter 6, verse 64, we learned earlier that he had said, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas would be the one to betray him. But so that we don't get too far into the text, I want to give you background as to what has been happening in chapter 13. Chapter 13 has turned our focus toward the Passion 
of Christ, and the passion of Christ is the cross of Christ. And so we noted that in chapters 1 through 12, there was a sign, then the sign was followed by a discourse where Jesus taught and interpreted what the sign meant. Uh, And then when we get to chapter 13, now we're seeing the discourse where all of Jesus' teaching is pointing forward to look at the cross of Christ, and we see what Christ, what Jesus is teaching through the lens of looking forward to the cross. And so here it's no different. In chapter 13, beginning chapter 13, he, he spoke of, it was the, the Lord's Supper, the last supper that he was eating with the disciples. And it was in the context and the confines of this supper where Jesus got up and took upon the form of, of slaves' clothing even, and he washed the disciples' feet And he served them, and after washing the disciples' feet and having this interaction with Peter, we find now in verse 18, the conversation continues from his conversation with Peter. He had challenged the disciples to be servants of all in the same way that he had served them. And so we continue with verse 18. If you found your place, say word. Follow along as I read. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking, looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was, reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. And he, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, go and buy things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me as I said to the Jews. Now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this... All men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Throughout this passage, John introduces the hour of darkness. 
He says it in verse 30, so after receiving the the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Jesus has eaten the Passover meal with his disciples and he identifies Judas as the betrayer. And so this text really moves along in in three scenes, or the text that we look at this morning really moves along in, in, in three scenes. The first scene is this, Jesus provides direction to his disciples in verses 18 through 20. And the direction that he's providing to his disciples is direction that they will find helpful after he has gone, after he's gone to the cross. And so verse 18 clues us in as to why Judas was numbered among the twelve. It helps us to see that Jesus wasn't duped into choosing Judas, hoping that things would, would, would work out differently, and that perhaps Judas would turn and believe in him. In fact, Jesus tells us in verse 18 that it was to fulfill Scripture. But it is that Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He quotes from Psalm 41.9 here where King David is speaking about the, the painful experience of what it's like to be betrayed. One of his counselors, Ahithophel, has, has betrayed him and joined Ab- Absalom's rebellion. And so Jesus knew, humanly speaking, what it was like to be betrayed by one who was closest to him. The words of the Hebrew text here, literally, where he quotes from, literally mean, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me, literally mean, he has given me great fall, and he has taken cruel advantage of me. I want to caution us, though, that we shouldn't take this text to the extreme. We shouldn't take it to the extreme of saying that Judas has no other alternative in the matter. We shouldn't necessarily say that Judas was destined by fate to betray Christ. As we'll see in a moment, Judas pursues his own course and and he solidifies his own place in Satan's scheme. It's been said by Effie Bruce and the Gospel of John, even if Jesus' betrayal by, the one, by one of his intimate companions was foreseen, it was by Judas' personal choice that he, rather than anyone else, eventually fulfilled that role. And so here's the thing. Jesus is providing direction to his disciples. And the first point of direction that he provides to them is seen in verse 19 where he says, Believe that I am. Notice what he says. From now on, I'm telling you this. I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. When he calls his disciples to believe, he's he's speaking of them believing in greater and more full way after the cross than they even do now. And he says he wants them to believe that I am. The word he, if you notice in your text, it's most likely italicized. But the word I am there, it it points us to that name of God. The the name of God that we see in the Old Testament where God reveals himself to Moses saying, I am that I am. And we've seen it throughout the Gospel of John where Jesus is pointing to himself as the very person of God. He is God the Son revealed in the flesh, and he he is claiming deity. And so Jesus tells them before it happens, 
that it's so that you may believe I am. And so Jesus sovereignly strengthens and directs his disciples. And this highlights, it highlights the importance of believing in Jesus as God's revelation of himself. Because after the cross, the disciples will realize more fully that their teacher is the one whom he has been calling them to have faith in. And so Jesus is the visible expression of God's glory. We see it in this text. We've seen it uh, throughout the Gospel of John. He and the Father share the same nature of deity. In John 8, 58, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. And so we've noted that he, using this, this language, I am, in the Greek text, he is, he is invoking the very name of God. And so by doing that, he's emphasizing his sovereignty over the time and the events. All the things that are transpiring and happening at this point. Even when Judas is going to betray him. And so he tells them, giving them direction. Believe that I am. Don't doubt it. Believe that I am. When I'm on the cross and when I'm in the tomb, don't doubt it. Believe that I am. Believe I am who I've said that I am. And then secondly, he, he tells them to go as my messengers. Look at verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. In other words, I am sending you to go with this message. Believe that I am, and then the ones who receive you, they receive me, and in turn, they receive then the Father. And so based on the unity of Jesus and the Father, His disciples, get this, are the sent ones. They're his ambassadors. And Jesus says, this is because I and the Father are one. He's already said that in the Gospel of John, speaking of of the unity of he and his Father. And so here's the thing. Jesus is speaking. He's speaking a word of encouragement to his disciples. Even to you and I, that after my betrayal, you'll believe fully and then be sent And those who receive him then receive the Father. And those who reject those who are sent, the ones who reject the disciples as they're sent out, they ultimately reject God. And so the connection couldn't be clearer for us as Christ's disciples today. Our lives are to be consumed with the commission of Christ And as disciples, we carry this message of hope as we're sent by Christ. And so Jesus is trying to encourage, not trying, he's encouraging his disciples as they're preparing, as he's preparing them for the cross and about to reveal the betrayer. Scene 2 continues to move along where Jesus identifies the betrayer. In verses 21 through 30, he identifies Judas as the one. In fact, in verse 21, it says that he became troubled in spirit. And he testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The fact that he became troubled in spirit, it, it points us to see that his anguish was visible. The disciples could see the anguish, most likely, that was on his face. And so as we look in verses 21 through 30, 
we see that he was sitting around the table, that's the setting, with his disciples. And as he was sitting around the table with his disciples, he speaks and says, the one who's going to betray me is here. And so the disciples are puzzled by this and you can imagine they begin speaking amongst themselves and having a discussion amongst themselves as to who is the one who's going to betray Jesus and so they're talking and they're having this conversation and as they're having this conversation Peter looks over at John well it says in verse 23 there was reclining on Jesus's bosom the one whom uh, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved It's interesting that in the Gospel of John, John doesn't identify himself, but here in verse 23 and then later on in the Gospel of John, we we come to understand that this is most likely John, the author of the Gospel, who is the one that Jesus loved. And he identifies himself as such in the Gospel. And so there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, all right? And so he's reclining there on his, on his left side. He's reclining by Jesus on the left side of Jesus. And that's an important detail because in a moment we'll see, we know that he's reclining on the left side of Jesus because he has to lean back and he has to lean his head on Jesus' bosom, his chest, to ask a question of Jesus. Now before we get too carried away and begin to think things that are just uh, unconnected and disconnected from the culture of this day, note that this wasn't something that was seen as, uh, as, as uh, uncommon in the culture. A modern-day example of this would be if you, if you go to Uganda, and if you would choose to go to Uganda with us, uh, you would see that when, when men walk down the street, they hold hands with one another. It's not a sign of Uh, of same-sex attraction it's a sign of friendship and so what we have here is a scene of of friendship and of loyalty to one another and so Peter looks at John across the the table perhaps and they're all reclining around the table reclining on their right arm and he looks at John he says ask him who he means he kind of he motions to him in a way, but, but he asks him kind of under, under his breath in a way that, that he wasn't trying to be so obvious. And you've got all the disciples around the table having this conversation. And so John does. He, he leans back on Jesus' chest and he, he asks him, who are you talking about? Who's the one who's going to betray you? Verse 26, six, Jesus answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped it, He had dipped the morsel, and he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. It says in verse 28, now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. But understand what's happening. John probably knew. Jesus probably most likely responded quietly to John when John asked this question. And so when he he dipped the morsel into the cup and he, he hands it to Judas, he doesn't pass it around to Judas. Get the picture. Judas is most likely on the right-hand side of Jesus, a place of honor. He's sitting right beside him at this meal. Jesus has washed his feet. Even though, he knew, even though he knew Judas would betray him from the beginning, he has taught him and he has invested in him. And Judas is right next to him at the table 
and Jesus hands him the bread that's been dipped in the sauce, and he tells him, what you do, do quickly. In other words, speed it up. Don't wait. Make haste. Go and do it. Don't even wait as long as you were planning to wait. Just go and do what you're going to do. John tells us in verse 30, after he had received the morsel, that it was night. And it's both literal night and symbolic. Throughout John's gospel, we've become sensitive to the contrast that that he uses between light and darkness. The struggle that exists between light and darkness. In fact, we see it in the prologue, but after the prologue, we see it with Nicodemus coming to Jesus under the guise of night in John chapter 3, verse 2. And then at the end of the gospel in John 19.39, we see Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came after Jesus' crucifixion, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds of weight. You see the contrast between he comes to him first under the guise of night to be hidden. But then upon his believing, he comes into the light. This is, the, this is the struggle that we see painted throughout the Gospel of John. It's imagery that John uses to point us to see the contrasting elements of light and darkness. John 9, 4, he says, We must work the works of Him. Jesus telling His disciples, We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And in John 9, 11, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble, but because, or because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the, light, in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Or in John 12, 35, Jesus said to them, For a little while longer, light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes, while you have the light. Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. John twelve forty six, I've come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Here's the point I want us to see. Judas has been exposed to the light. And Judas has rejected the light and chosen the darkness over the light. Judas represents the person prescribed in or described in John 3:19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Think about it. Judas was the treasurer of the group of disciples. For three years, roughly three years, he he walked around with the disciples. It means that he was a trusted, he was trusted among, among the group. But throughout John's gospel, we kind of get hindsight glimpses into the character and the, the heart of Judas. In chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Or in John 12, 3 through 6, John gives us another example where Mary, Martha's sister, comes to anoint Jesus' feet with perfume and expensive nard. And it said, the fragrance filled the house. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? 
Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had a money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. And if you remember the synoptics, the synoptics indicate that Judas wasn't alone in seeing Mary's action as unnecessary extravagance. They kind of jumped on board with what Judas was saying. You know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Perhaps this is why Jesus is telling his disciples all of this now, revealing it to them. The betrayer is one of their own. He's saying, believe that I am. Don't doubt, believe. And when you have believed fully, take this message. You are my sent ones. You know, Judas was part of the 70 that Jesus had sent out to do ministry. He was among the closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry. So the question is, what was it like for for Jesus to wash his feet? What was it like for Judas to have his feet washed by Jesus? What if it made him uncomfortable? You know, we tend to think of Judas's role in in a certain and a defined way. We think of him as one who was planted among the disciples to betray Jesus. But perhaps we should broaden that perspective just a little bit and see Judas as a man who ultimately was driven by his own wants, without concern for others. His insatiable desire to pursue his own agenda was more important to him than anything and everything else. Everything else took second place to his own personal agenda. Judas had, he had great opportunity to turn from the wicked schemes and pursuits of his own desires and his own agenda. But you know what he did? He continued down the road of selfish pursuits. God gave him over to those selfish pursuits and his his own desires. And so in Judas, we see a portrait of one who couldn't have been closer to the revelation of light. But in spite of his closeness, he chose his own way. In spite of all the signs Jesus performed and all the discourses that Jesus taught revealing himself and and exhorting the crowds to believe in him, in spite of all the personal time and investment that he spent with the twelve, Judas still pursued his own way. He still pursued darkness. My thought here is what horror. What horror to think somebody could walk in such close proximity to the Lord of creation and be in such close proximity proximity to the revelation of light and still deny him and even, even betray him. Brothers and sisters, this ought to be a question or at least a thought that would stir our souls and prompt us prompt us to do this, to cast all of our care, all of our dependence upon Christ, our Savior. Consider this morning the strong exhortation of Scripture speaking to believers, to disciples, to the church. 2 Peter 1.10, Peter challenges them, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. 
For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Are the familiar verse of Philippians 2.12, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Our church, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, right? Highlighting the importance of the the community of saints, of gathering together as the church, as the fellowship of believers, knowing and confessing that we need one another. This is a common confession that Christ is our God, that he is our Savior. And he continues, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, highlighting the importance of the church, of the community of saints, of the communion of the body. One other question to consider in scene two before we move on. What's the difference between Judas and the other disciples? I mean, before the rooster crowed three times, or before the rooster crowed, Peter denied Jesus three times. The disciples seemed defeated at the end of John's gospel, after Christ's crucifixion. Where do we find the disciples? We find them fishing. They've gone back fishing. Here's the difference. I believe the difference is the disciples modeled a yielded spirit, a teachable spirit, a yielded heart. Judas, because of his unyielding spirit, was given over into the hands of Satan, and he became a pawn in the hand of Satan and his schemes. In fact, in verse 27 that we read a moment ago, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Literally, it means Satan then absorbed all of him. There wasn't one piece, of Sa- uh, one piece of Judas that wasn't then absorbed in the scheme and the work of Satan. Little by little by little, he had pursued his own agenda and run his own course until ultimately he was at a place where Satan consumed him. It's like an addiction where a person becomes slowly consumed by the act. And then at every waking waking moment of one's life, it becomes consumed and structured around carrying out the action of that specific addiction so that it controls the person. It controls everything about them. In the same way, Judas became absorbed into Satan's scheme. Satan thoroughly possessed him. The love of Christ that was shown toward Judas gathered with the disciples and him washing their feet and being in the place of honor only served to harden Judas's heart. So here's where I think we come down here in scene two. Disciples are, of Christ are cautioned against this sort of lifestyle. 
We're to be submissive to Christ and to remain sensitive to the promptings of His Holy Spirit within our lives so that we're guided not by our own wills and desires, but we are guided by His will, His desire. We are guided by the prompting of the Holy Spirit through knowledge of the Word of God. And we pattern our lives after the Word of God. The betrayer, then, the betrayer is one who hands Christ over to his enemies. Get this, willingly or unwittingly. He serves the forces of darkness rather than light. She serves the forces of darkness rather than light. Brothers and sisters, this calls us to great awareness in our living for Christ. May it not be said that we would be a reason to cause others to stumble in coming to Christ. May it not be said that our actions betray our Lord and Savior. May it not be said that our thoughts betray faithfulness to our Lord and Savior. And that when we find ourselves in this position of pursuing our own will and agenda above that of Christ, that we would be repentant and quickly confess that before the Lord and come and turn to Him. In the third scene of the text, beginning in verse 31, going through verse 35, I think we have an invitation to heed Christ's teaching. I mean, that's what this time is about with his disciples. He's teaching them what they need to know in the face of betrayal that's about to come to him. He's about to be betrayed. And so I want us to see two distinctive traits of Christian community, uh, I think, come out of verses 31 through 35. And the first trait is this. The cross is central. We see this in verses 31 and 32. Notice with me, therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him immediately. Notice the connection in John's narrative here. Therefore, begins verse 31. And it it clues us first to see this transition that's now set in place through Judas' betrayal. Judas has left. And since Judas has left, therefore, Jesus begins to teach the disciples and to prepare them for what is ahead. And secondly, it points us to see that Jesus is teaching the disciples about their mission The rest of chapter 13 through chapter 17 focus on Jesus' final hours with his disciples until we reach chapter 18 when Judas steps back into the picture and ultimately betrays Christ in chapter 18. And so first, when we see that the cross is central, it points us to see the glory of God is displayed through the cross Listen, in the, in the Christian community, the cross of Christ must be central in our fellowship. For it's through the cross of Christ that Christ was glorified. That the glory of God was displayed. Both through the weakness of the cross and the strength of the cross. 
the weakness of the cross, and that Christ was crucified there. But the strength of the cross is that, as we sung a moment ago, the curse of sin was reversed. The cross reversed our curse. And Christ redeemed us. And this points us to see the glory of God on display that he would descend and take the form of a lowly servant, even the lowest servant, washing the disciples' feet. And then he would be raised up on the the cross. And until you think that Christ couldn't get any lower, he dies on the cross, a miserable and humiliating death that he might redeem the creation, that he might redeem mankind. And so the glory of God is displayed through the cross. And it's through the cross that Christ carries out God's redemptive plan. And here's the thing, by the cross, Jesus establishes a way for us to have vibrant, joy-filled fellowship with God, our Father. If you want to have joy-filled fellowship with God, we've got to go through the cross. It's through the cross that we experience new birth and new life by believing upon Christ and the work that He has done on the cross. This is why the cross is central The cross is a central distinctive of the Christian community because it it points us to see the glory of God through Christ. But not only is the cross central, we must see that the mission is essential. In verses 33 through 35, Jesus addresses them as little children. John uses this language in the epistle of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. The idea here is that we must live with an eternal perspective. That's what he's calling the disciples to, is to have an eternal perspective. I'm with you a little while longer. You'll seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. We must realize that life is more than our earthly, temporal existence. And so from verse 35 through, through chapter 14, verse 14, Jesus is teaching the disciples about having this eternal perspective that he goes away and he will prepare a place for them and that he will come back and receive them to be with him. Now, Jesus' announcement that he's going away And when he says, where I'm going, you cannot come, comes as a surprise to his disciples. Because the disciples had heard Jesus tell the crowd these words. And it wasn't a surprise that he would tell the crowds these words, but it it was a surprise that he would tell his disciples they couldn't go where he was going at this time. Because they were the closest to him. They had followed him. And so in in chapter 7, verse 34, and in chapter 8, verse 21, he tells the same thing to the crowd, but he adds words to to the crowd, and he omits the words when he says it to his disciples. In 734, he says, You'll seek me, but you will not find me. And he tells them in 821 that you will die in your sins, speaking to the crowds. We see here the disciples will have to learn that it's precisely because of Jesus' departure 
that their salvation in God's eternal abode will be secured forever. They must learn, the disciples must learn to view life from the eternal perspective of the cross. The cross displays the glory of God and it fuels the mission of the community of saints. In other words, the disciples have a mission to engage in, to embark upon. And Jesus is laying the groundwork here for the mission that they are to embark upon. The second distinctive I think think we see in this text are under the mission is essential. The second note that I want us to see is this. Evangelism is defined by love in the Christian community. In one sense, I think we need to redefine the mission and redefine what evangelism is about. Oftentimes, when we consider or think about evangelism, we we think about people going door to door, knocking on doors and saying, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? But I want us to take a step back and really think about and, and process this call and this mission for the disciples. Because in verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And listen to verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here's how the community of saints functions and operates. Here's how the local congregation, the body of believers, functions. They love one another. And so I I think in in many ways what we need to do is we need to catch a glimpse of what effect loving one another has on the world outside of the fellowship of saints. Because what Jesus is saying here, what he seems to be saying is, all men are going to know that you're my disciples, that you believe that I am, that you follow me. All men are going to know this by the way that you love one another. And so what I want us to see here is Jesus is calling his disciples to a specific way of life. He's contextualizing the mission of living out our faith within within the mission of the disciples. He's calling them to go, and as they go, as they are sent... Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives the one that I've sent receives the Father. He's calling them as they go to live out their faith in a way where they're loving one another. Think about last week and the text when Jesus says, What I have done to you, you are to do to one another. What had he just done? He had just done the lowliest form of service that anyone could do. He had washed their feet. And he says, you do this, you serve one another. And the challenge here, everybody else is going to know that you're my disciple, that you are followers, that there's something distinctly different about your life by the way that you love one another. When they look in on the body of Christ, on the church, when they see the fellowship of saints, they will see a group of people who love one another, who serve one another. And this will be like a magnet to metal drawing people into the kingdom of God. They'll say, I want that. 
That's missing in my life. And it'll point them to see their need for the loving Heavenly Father. And so I I think we need to have a bigger picture here of, of what evangelism is about, of what the mission that Christ has given to the church is about. Evangelism certainly is about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and telling others about Christ. But it's not simply to be sectioned off as something that we we devote one or two hours to a week. No, it's to encompass all of our living. Our lives must be an effervescent aroma before God in the presence of others. This is what it means to be transformed by Christ. To have the Holy Spirit residing within And so Jesus modeled love for one another. He modeled this love through washing their feet, through a self-sacrificial act of love for the disciples. And so Christians, our love, disciples of Christ, our love for one another is seen through service, through self-sacrificial service and obedience to Jesus' commands. You know, we were talking this week in home group about that particular text and what it what it means in our lives. And it's interesting that this doesn't call us to convenient service, does it? I mean, this is inconvenient service. Showing the love of Christ to others is not always convenient. In fact, most of the time it's it's probably not convenient. But the call that we experience in, in coming to Christ is that we would give selfless service. The whole picture then communicates that genuine discipleship is one of the most potent forms of evangelism. The love that's shown within the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ is to be an an attractive community of gathered disciples who, in spite of their differences, love one another because the unity that God has given us through the presence of His Spirit, it it bonds us together as God's people. So the fellowship of saints becomes really the, the laboratory through which the lost and dying world look and see the radiance of Christ emanating through His followers. You know, we looked at many metaphors this morning, even in our, in our Bible study time before the service. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the spiritual house of living stones, a, a flock of sheep, and we can go on and on. And as the people of God, we must live with an eternal perspective, keeping in mind the mission of Christ and the cross. And so we're challenged this morning in a few specific ways. First, the question, are we pursuing our own way over Christ's way? Do other things in our lives take center stage? Or do we keep Christ at the center? Secondly, do you believe? Do you believe Jesus is God the Son? Do you believe Jesus is the Messiah that he died on the cross to redeem to walk, to redeem you to wash away your sin and that by placing your faith and trust in Christ by by professing with your mouth and following him that you make this confession 
and you surrender your life where He is Lord over your life and He directs you? Do you believe that? Thirdly, is your worship of Christ fueled by the cross? Is the cross central? Is it central in your life? Are you thankful for what Christ has done on the cross? Do you see the mission of the community of saints as essential? Is it essential in your life? I pray this morning that as we have a time to just respond to what the Lord is leading us in, how the Lord is leading us, we have a a time to respond through repentance, through confession, uh, through surrender, confessing Christ as Lord. However God is working in your life and calling you to respond to Him this morning, I want to encourage you, don't delay. Respond to the Lord. Confess those things that He has revealed to you. And believe upon Him. And this morning, let us be especially mindful as we prepare our hearts and our minds to partake of the Lord's Supper, to come to the table. Because when we come to the table, we come confessionally. We want to confess before the Lord our need for Him, our our need for His forgiveness. We want to live at peace and unity within the body. So spend some time this morning reflecting and preparing your heart and your mind to partake of the table and to enjoy the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your goodness toward us and Your good hand in our lives. We worship You. And Lord, we confess that we have such a tremendous need for you. Lord, let us not be dependent or even fall into the trap of pursuing our own way and pursuing our own will. But Lord, let us be dependent completely upon you. We cast all of our care and all of our dependency upon you. For Lord, you have redeemed us. And it's because of your redemption that you have given us salvation. You have made us righteous. And so we thank you, Father, for the grace you've extended to us through Christ our Savior. And we pray that you would be exalted in our hearts and our minds even now as we sing and and pray and, and respond to your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?